0: Welcome to the Women in Wales First Poetry in a Climate of Change podcast. I am Jordan Imani Keith, Seattle Civic Poet 2019-2022. to This series highlights the shared experiences of women who recognize the intersectional risks and benefits we share with the whales of the Sailor's Sea. I would like to welcome Aleda Marisol Cervantes to the Women and Wales First Poetry in a Climate of Change podcast. Aleda, or Mari for her familia, is a self identified third world woman who grew up in a small town in Guadalajara, Mexico. She co wrote and published a chapter in the anthology Gendering Globalization globalizing gender. She was also a Tin House workshop attendee and Dream Yard Fellow 2020, a scholarship recipient for a scholarship for Frost Place Conference in 2020, and the International San Miguel de Riders Conference. She currently works at a community college building bridges between underrepresented students and the world of higher education. She is a TEDx presenter and a poet who doesn't read her poetry out loud often, but we're excited to have her do so today. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Jordan.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's very exciting, and for the context of the world and the future, you know, this is the first time we've physically been sort of in the same space since um, we met via Zoom. And we met via Zoom because you responded to the call from the Civic Poet Office, my, my role, to join a workshop for Women in World's First Poetry in a Climate of Change to learn how to write poetry and to respond to the question, are you an endangered species? And do you feel that way or do you see yourself that way? I would love to know what happened for you with that call? Why did you respond? We've not actually never really had this conversation. So I'm curious.
1: Yes. First of all, I responded late to the call, um, which is funny because I'm constantly late to things and my friends and family always make fun of me for being late. But I think it was more like I was really hesitant about like who was going to respond and You know, I feel like most artists, I'm really self conscious of what I write and what I put out in the world. And I think that fear of rejection was really like holding me back from applying because that application was sitting on my computer for weeks. And I was like, yeah, tomorrow is the day. And then (laughs) the next day I was like, tomorrow. I know exactly what I'm going to write. No, tomorrow. and one of my friends who sent me the application kept asking me if I had applied, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm doing it tomorrow." <laughs> uh, so I finally sent a piece that I actually wrote—I don't know—a couple years ago about Berta Cáceres, who is who was an indigenous woman uh, defending the environment in Central America and was murdered. Um, and I think that was a really big shock. I want to say it was a really big shock for the world because she won a pretty big award for, you know, doing all this activism. And this award was supposed to, quote-unquote, protect her, right? Like, they won't come after you if the world knows who you are. Um, And they still did, you know, like big corporations still came after her. Um, And it was just incredibly shocking, but I just always remember her because when people would ask her, you know— how do you know this is going to happen? And and she kept saying, like, I knew this was going to be rough work. I knew it was going to be difficult, but we're going to win. Like, the river told me so. And I feel like she was so grounded in, like, I don't know, the water and the land and knowing that, like, we can't. Like, it's up to us to defend it, right? Like, it's not up to different people. Like, no one is going to come, like, speak for you. So, yeah, I sent that poem because I was like, I feel like this is exactly, you know, what your call was asking. Like, I was like, yeah, this is what I want to write about, like, people who are endangered species, like people who are defending endangered species. Like, maybe we don't think of water that way, but water is very much an endangered species. So it felt really connected and it felt really personal. And I was really grateful that you accepted my application,
0: even though it was late. I have to say... Everything that you just brought up triggered an emotional response and a memory unexpectedly. And um, I will say one of the great things about the moment of getting your application was there was no doubt that we needed you, um, Jay and I. And we offered that grace to other people as well. So fewer people than one would expect responded. And no matter the hesitancy or all those things that, that all of us fear as artists, I know I do, you did cross into to the yes of the moment of like, I'm going to put this out there. When you just said you were talking about um, Bertha Casares, the context of understanding that you presented, where it's clear that to defend the things that give us life, air and water and trees, that we are dependent on for our lives, to protect those things could endanger our lives, right? And Mm -hmm. um, when you said she thought the award would protect her, it made me think of Wangari Matai from Kenya and... How her environmental work, specifically at the intersection of women's lives in Kenya, put her life at risk. And it and she did kind of escape by the Nobel Prize, but that is not always the case. And as she mentioned, the Nobel Prize took her out of the field work that she'd been doing, so maybe that's it. But here in this country, do you think... That people recognize the work we do and others do to bring attention to the rivers, the um uh, other mammals. <laughs> do you think people think of it as something that puts our lives at risk on this in this part of North America?
1: I wanna say it depends. And you know, certain areas for sure. I feel like in certain areas that are big corporations are like there and they're like driving most of the deci- like the government decisions. And if you're pushing, you know, what does that mean? I do think, and this is like a conversation I have sometimes with some of my friends, that I couldn't do some of the things I do here if I was back home in Mexico. It's just so different. Like, I also know the majority of You know, some of the corporations that are killing our forests, uh, the minories are majority U.S. and Canadian owned. And I think, like, how ironic to be sitting here, you know, looking at the mountains and the trees and the water here in the Pacific Northwest. And, I mean, if um, you have the privilege to, like, travel and go to Canada, you know, same thing. They protect all these things, but they don't do that and the rest. Of the of like the American continent, and I found that really ironic that, like here we're like really about protecting the environment and doing all these things, but so I'm like, we're not gonna we're not gonna be well until all of us are well. And I think the pandemic very much was like, see, like when one of us is sick, we're all sick. Um, and so I'm really hoping like if we continue, you know, to do these things to the rest of like, Latin America, we are going to have to suffer the consequences here, too. And we see those consequences with, like, mass migration, like mass migration that is caused by the current, like, climate change, right? And so I think sometimes here it feels, I feel like we have, maybe it's, it's just different, a different type of privilege of doing this work, but I also see a lot of people, like, Black, Indigenous, and, Mostly people of color leading this work of understanding that taking care of the environment goes beyond this like capitalist green <laughs> type of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's more about like, you know, we are tied to this land. Like, even if we are guests here, you know, I'm um, an immigrant here, like, I still, as a good guest, is my responsibility to then take care of this land and listen to those who've been taking care of this land for a long time. I do think here in the United States what happens is that we get ignored. (laughs) Or, you know, I feel like there's this thing where, like, they know, but they pretend they don't know. Mm. It's just so interesting. Um, For example, with the fires in California and how there was that NPR article that came out that was like, yeah, you know, if we... Burn things before fire season, it won't happen anymore. And <laughs> Native people were like, um, Yeah, we've been telling you that for the past 500 years. It's called good fire. And we did it before because we knew like this is normal. What is normal is how massive they're becoming because of climate change. But because we know it's dry season, this is what we've been doing. So I think. If we don't change our ways and we completely, I think, decolonize, but not in a metaphorically way, like, actually, like, we need to give the land back. We need to understand that the the way we've been doing it is not working. Why is it going to work in the future? Like, it won't. But if we actually sit down and listen to the people who've been taking care of this land for centuries, things might change. Maybe they will look different.
0: I appreciate you bringing up the NPR reflection. And when you were talking and you said when one of us is sick, all of us are sick, and that the pandemic has, has made that clear, I'm not sure why some people, like you and a few others who responded to the call and people who may have recognized the intersectional risks uh that we all face but chose not to respond. Why there's some people who recognize we aren't separate from the things that give us life, right? I mean, we're not machines, though we use them. So it's almost stunning to me that we constantly have to remind people that you need clean air and clean water and that there are processes that happen throughout the rest of the natural world and inside of your body that make you be able to live. And they're interconnected. When you said something that I haven't had anyone else bring up, you know, how things are caused by the change, changing climate and the heat or the people needing to leave and move to a different area, because the natural world can't hold them anymore. Um, there's not enough water. There's The soil's degraded. Or I mean, that happened in the United States with the Dust Bowl, and people forget that in one day, the middle of the United States blew away. <laughs> like, all the topsoil blew away, and um, that migration led to people moving to California. It's not the first time. But the reason I'm framing the question that way is because it speaks to intersectionality between the elements that keep our lives, but also other species. And I wondered if you would share, if it's personal for you, if it brings up family connections for you, if it brings up um, ethnic or cultural connections to you, recognizing the experiences that particularly the orca whales in the Salish Sea, and by that I mean the southern resident killer whales, as they're called, who are on the endangered species list and fighting to not disappear. Do you see any similarities? And if so, what are they between you and this other mammalian species? Going back to
1: migration and thinking about when people in my small town started migrating, it was like right around when NAFTA was signed, right? Which is the national agreement for free trade between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And my town was a very large producer of sugarcane and corn. And because of this uh, agreement, um, the prices of corn went down just because then Canada and the U.S. were able to pay less. So a lot of people went out of business. Um, We would also be able to get sugar from other countries, which made our national sugar way more expensive, you know, than get it from other places. So then people had to look for other ways to eat, um, which meant migrating to the United States. So there was a very large migration because of lack of food, which left a lot of, like, children alone, a lot of elders alone. I don't know if I necessarily see that with the orcas, but I can feel that of, like, not having enough food, not being able to find the food because of the pollution, the noise pollution that, you know, they can't find, echolocate the salmon, the farms around salmon, you know, how popular of a food has become for us humans. And I just think, like, okay, so food is a big one, and food is political, I don't think enough people say it, but food is very much a a political issue, right? You know, having access to food. Um, Think about desert towns, right? Um, When I moved here and I started understanding how, you know, the United States work and where I currently live is a pretty low-income community and the closest grocery store is definitely 15 minutes. You have to drive to it. But there's a bunch of fast food restaurants around us, and there's a seven eleven you know, and I'm like, this is a food desert like <laughs> there's a clear example of food desert uh, when the majority of the people, like my neighbors are families, they all have majority of people have children, majority of them are black and brown, and I'm like, okay, so food desert and I'm thinking the orcas are also living in a food desert. Mm. Like, it's just correlation between, like, racism, and I'm like, this is how the orcas are also struggling. Why they are an endangered species is because they don't have enough to eat. Yeah, I also think we were talking a little bit before about Berta, uh, but just being a woman in Latin America is also, you have to, like, learn how to survive, and you know the tactics about, like, what not to do, when not to walk. Two women go missing every four minutes. And there's this past couple years has been brought up more and more to light, you know, because I think a lot of the blame was on the woman. Like people were like, well, if you didn't go out late at night, then became, well, if you didn't wear that, well, if you didn't speak like that, well, if and I'm like, so the list keeps growing for the women, but then no one else is. You know, being held accountable. And there was a lot of marches this past couple. I think it started in 2019 in Chile, and there was, like, just this big march. And the saying of the movement is, ni una mas, which means no one more. And I think about the orcas, too. You know, like, no one more missing, no one more death. Mm. Yeah, like, I don't want to know another name of a woman that we have to memorize and said the last time we saw her, her age, and then do the same with the orcas. Like, have to say, like, remember when so-and-so used to live here? Remember when so-and-so, you know, used to do these things? And I do think there is some very heavy intersections around, like, colonialism and, and the patriarchy. I think... Yes, capitalism. But I also think the patriarchy that takes away a lot of our agency and a lot of our ability to feel. Yeah, because when, you know, when we think about feminist movements, we think, oh, you know, just women rights and this very whitewash way. But no, it's not. Like, feminism is intersectionality. Like, feminism is about healing of all genders, you know, any gender, any sexual form, any person in any form in the natural world and I remember seeing um, Angela Davis speak and she said water is a feminist issue and I was like oh my god it is no you're right yeah and so the orcas are a feminist issue right therefore what's hurting them it's colonialism and the patriarchy which is very much like women throughout Latin America are being hurt is like, yeah, colonialism and the patriarchy. And to keep each other alive, we have to find new ways of living, uh, of being in this world. Like, we can't continue this lifestyle. Like, it's not going to keep any of us alive, right? And the people in privilege, the people in power, they're not going to stop and say, like, let me give it up to help you. Like, that's never going to happen. I refuse to read that book by Bill Gates about climate change because I'm like, you know, damn right, what would like help (laughs) you giving money. (laughs) Um, But, you know, giving up privilege is really hard, but that's that's what we have to do. We have to learn how to be like, you know what, if it means other people are going to be better, then I'm willing to change this. But we have to do it collectively. Can't be one person. I'm going to go vegan. No, that's not how it works. It has to be collective. It has to be all of us are willing to, you know what? If we do this, then I think a new world is possible. We don't have to keep living like
0: this. Wow. Okay. I, I am crying. <laughs> um, and I'm thankful for that. I really struck by what you said about names and the last time I saw her and thinking of, I'm going to just say what broke my heart and I don't know that I have ever recovered from was um, the December that one of the orcas was born and they talk about how they don't name them before a year because um, they might not live. And this information came at the same time that one of my first cousins, one of five, who has passed away and their mother is still alive. She's 98. The commonality and her you know her name her name was Pravita. And you know what that means for life, right? Mm-hmm. pro vita and i i i have not gotten over that and um the in quote environmental win from let's call it our side that said the people in richmond california would be having jobs in exchange for the refinery there still polluting their air and all i could think is uh not my words, but I believe it was Audrey Lord that said, "You know, what are we without our lives?" or it was either her, or Audrey and Rich. but what are we without our lives? I have a job, but you know, like you said, neighborhoods in Seattle where people are dying ten years, twelve years earlier than other people in the same city, what are we without our lives? And so. Um, when, you, when you just said that, it brought to tears and to understand. It is it is one consciousness, but you you said it better, so I won't repeat. But I would like to hear your poem before we get away. Um, this has been an astoundingly opening conversation, and, and I feel like people would be blessed by your poem. Will you share it now, please? Yes, yes, I would love to. Um, and I'm going
1: to leave you all with a quote before I read my poem that drives a lot of my understanding of this work, that um, incredible scholar, black scholar, Jackie Alexander said, what would it mean to be a refugee in a war on fire? So if we don't see each other as citizens of any nation state, we don't see each other as these labels, but rather we're all refugees in this world and we're working to make it better. And I'm going to read my poem titled, People of the Well, Sound of a Prayer. All lands that touch all ancestors, where firefly light migrates into a luminous bay, as the beauty of bodies belonging to nobody, are held in between braids and the sound of a prayer. Where firefly light migrates into a luminous embay, people of the whale, well, stuck between seen and unseen, are held in between braids and the sound of a prayer, as if death is another metaphor for this life. People of the well stuck between seen and unseen. All I hear is a Salish sea calling us home, as if death is another metaphor in this life, chasing us in this moment. All I hear is my mother calling me home, as the beauty of bodies belonging to nobody, chasing us in this moment. In all lands that touch all ancestors, but all kinds of mingle, when I don't know a holy Bible, but the palm of your hands. And then you tell me I'm not her. Are we forgetting the words and flesh? I don't know a holy Bible, but the palm of your hands. So my bones don't rattle my skin. Are we forgetting the words and flesh? All human blood is bound to ocean waters. And my bones don't rattle my skin. Don't you feel it burning? All human blood is bound to ocean waters. So tell us we're winning, while this body is reborn again in the prayer of my grandmother. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the Holy Bible of your words and your reflections and your poem. You have been listening to Alera Marisol Cervantes, and I suggest you find out more about the work she's doing in the world. Thank you for being part of this podcast. Thank you. The Women and Wales Poetry in a Climate of Change podcast was made possible through the support of the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Jack Straw Cultural Center, and Urban Wilderness Project. I'd like to thank Gretchen Yanover for our theme music, and thank you, listeners, for joining us. Learn more about the Women in Wales Poetry in a Climate of Change project at urbanwildernessproject.org.